0: So so last week, Aleem spoke on what what it's like, you know, uh, to be like an ordinary radical, a radical every day. And this week, I'm speaking about our value. We are a people of relationship. Is that up there? Isn't that just a lovely photo? I I can't remember where we got that, but it smacks of relationship to me. Um, I'm really going nowhere with that, but to just, you know, that's nice. Um, And the reason relationship is so important to us is because relationship is everything. Isn't that nice? Literally, though, not just relationship is everything, but relationship is everything because everything is relationship. There is nothing that exists, no subject and no object, that exists in an existential silo without anything else around it. Everything, whether that's a person, a chair, a philosophy, a car, whatever it is, it is related and has an impact on other subjects and objects. Sorry within the closed system of the universe that we, you know, we just got it. I mean, we were born here. There's really not a lot we can do. But everything is related. Everything is connected. And because of that, everything matters. Absolutely everything matters. So relationship matters to us. We are not just by ourselves. We're with each other. And we're in a world. And we're in a world together. And that matters to us. We want to think about that, articulate that, unpack that a little bit. And have that central, and, and, and like a central conscious to our conscience. Sorry, central to our conscience, as we grow as a community. Relationship is truly something that matters to us, and um, that's what we want to talk about tonight. Um, when I thought about like you know consequence of relationship, everything mattering, things bigger than myself, and, and whatnot, I was reminded of. Um, Pardon me. This experience that I had when I was maybe eight or nine, and I was at a, a wedding. It wasn't a family wedding, thank goodness. I think they were friends of friends of friends of friends. I, I can't really remember. You know, when you're a kid, you get dragged along to things because your parent, dad's work, or whatever. Anyway, I was there, and there was um, these games where they, you know, took the kids away, and you play these games to keep you entertained while the adults, you know, sit through the speeches and whatnot. We all know what that's like. And you know, I was and in retrospect really thankful that um, I didn't have to listen to Uncle Tom talking about you know, rada, rada, rada for ages and we got to play these games. And I was there with my friend Scott. You know when you're a kid and you rock up to a event and your friend is also there and you're like, yes, I know someone. We can talk, we can hang out, we can whisper, you know, and, and do crazy things and crawl around underneath the tables where everyone's being boring and doing speeches. And um, there was this one particular game where it was like this relay race and we had this bucket of glitter and um, you had to pass the bucket of glitter and, uh, and, and not spill it anywhere. And Scott and I were in a team and I said to Scott, now I I'm straight A's as a kid when, you know, in, for behaviour and thing, academics maybe not so much, but behaviour, straight A's. But I saw this opportunity just to escape the mundane every day of these relay games and I thought, hey Scott, we should tip that bucket of glitter over just cause. Just to mix it up a little bit, just to challenge the system. And, um, and I did, you know? I didn't trip, I faked it, never been much of an actor, but I tripped and the glitter went everywhere. And Scott and I wore that. We got walked back to our parents and had to sit through the speeches. And I felt really bad for Scott because Scott actually got grounded the next day. And Scott told me later on that he was not allowed to play Nintendo with his friend anymore and actually had to sit into his room. What that made me realize was my own actions cause a lot more, whether it be for the good or in this case the worsening, of any given situation, with any given person, in any given environment. Now, I know what it's like to have glitter on my fingers and glitter just everywhere. If you, if you deal with glitter, kids, you'll know what I'm talking about. It absolutely goes everywhere and I'm pretty sure somewhere in the Sanford Valley there is still remnants of my glitter in the environment. So if you're ever walking out there and you just inhale some glitter and the environment's suffering and global warming all of it, I play a part in that. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. But my big point is my own very foolish action as an eight-year-old to spill glitter everywhere had an effect. It had an effect on me. I got I got pretty badly smacked, let's be honest. had an effect on Scott and it had an effect on the environment. And so if we're conscious of that, it makes everything else matter just so much more than ourselves. You know what, not just simply bags of chemicals just walking around this closed system and just doing what we do. Things do have meaning. Things have value. And, and what we do, how we say things, wherever we go, it has an effect. We're going to talk about that tonight. So originally when I was like, you know, I'm going to talk about relationship, I thought, I thought back to like every relationship message I'd, I'd ever heard before and usually it involves some kind of used pastor like sitting on a chair backwards you know just like this just talking about relationships and talking about some awkward you know stories from high school and had the word honor in there probably like way too many times and you know he'd answer questions like you know how far is too far or um, does God want me to hold hands with my by my, my boyfriend or something like that. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to do one of those sermons. I think relationships are a lot bigger than that. And I don't want to be that guy. I've never been much of a youth pastor anyway. Um, what I want to talk about is the broader, the broader concept of, of relationship. And I have the proclivity to ramble. And so if in any case or in any point in this, um, in what I'm saying here, you get lost, I'll give you a bit of a roadmap so you know where I'm going. So the first thing I want to talk about is just the nature of relationship Quite generally. Then I'll talk about how relationship fits into the Christian story. I mean, why in a Christian church are we talking about relationship as this broad concept? And what does that have anything to do with how we make sense of our lives in light of who Jesus was and, and the Christian tradition? And then thirdly, what do we actually do with this? So, great, you know, Jesus relationship, big world, big, you know, philosophy of relationship, awesome. I'll try and land it in something existential um, and something that can uh, hopefully... Um, uh, you know, inform you know, who we are and what we do as, as, a, as a central value. So I'll finish there. So the first thing I want to talk about is the nature of relationship. And um, the first thing I want to say about relationship is that relationship requires inspiration. If relationship is everything and everything comes from somewhere, where did the idea of relationship originally come from? Now... Relationship is simply just a semantic and it's a word. When I say relationship, I'm literally just making a noise with my mouth. But it's common language, something that we both understand. When I say relationship, you know what I'm talking about. And when I say relationship, what I'm talking about is a subject or an object in some way being connected to another subject or object in whatever form, in whatever context. It's related. Its existence is not without effect of something else. And so, where did that whole idea come from? Um, why is the world one of relationships? Why can't I just throw glitter about the Sanford Valley? And why can't Scott just play Nintendo the next day? Why do things have consequence? And the reason for that is because I think the world was created that way. Um, I, I first started thinking about this concept when um, I watched. Uh, it was a Dr. Seuss film. We watched it. It was Norton, Norton Here's a Who. Is that a movie? Norton. Horton. Horton. I would say Norton. I don't know where I got this Norton from. I've never had a friend called Norton. Not yet. Um, so Horton, Here's a Who. And um, I'm watching Horton, Here's a Who. And we you know, go to Whoville, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is, some, is it inside the elephant's ear? Or? It's in a speck. It's in a speck. And the elephant interacts with the speck. Anyway, within the speck. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the story, Horton is an elephant. And there's a speck that this elephant hears a voice from. And he becomes aware that there's this little society within this speck. And so it's created by a guy called Dr. Seuss, you know, green eggs and ham and all of that. And um, we go to Whoville. I'm like, this is pretty crazy. There's some, you know, for the artists amongst us, there's some abstractionism in there. It's different. Ears are a bit curlier, you know, color is a bit wonkier, it's a bit more eccentric. Food, I don't know if I'd try that, looks a bit weird. but something caught me. I was like, you know, Dr. Seuss is renowned as one of the greatest creatives in recent history. Super creative. He's able to you know, create things that, and, and cause us to imagine, stir our uh, imagination and, and our wonder. And yet, I was struck by this opportunity he had to create a literally new place where no one had ever been before. I've never been to Hooville. I guarantee you guys have never been there either. I'm, maybe we can talk about it if you have. Never been to Whoville. And he could have created anything. There was like a blank slate, a blank canvas. Anything could have been put on there. Anything. Pen to paper, he could have created whatever he wanted. And yet, the Who's had ears still. There was a ground. And there was a sky. And there was a horizon. And there were roofs and there was food. And there were all these things that we have in our world as well. And it struck me. I was like, this guy was inspired by the world that was around him. He is in a closed frame of existence whereby he almost inherits these experiences that he has. And, and while we can be creative, being ultimately, create, like being, being ultimately creative requires us to be void of any kind of inspiration, any sort of creativity, no matter what you create. There are certain degrees of creativity. For example, if I painted this microphone pink, I mean, you know, it could be a pink microphone, but if I put something crazy on it, you know, that, what I'm saying is there's degrees of creativity. And... Um, it struck me, it was like, if one of the world's greatest creatives can't create a new world, Whoville, completely devoid of inspiration with shapes, colours, lines, ears, horizons, all these things that we have, how the heck am I going to do it? Do you know what I mean? And I thought, well, where did this guy get his inspiration from? And, and it struck me that all of us, when we're born and when we're walking around and, and living our lives, we're inspired by things. Every idea we have. Everything that we've ever done, any language we learn, any behaviour that we do, is learned. It's inspired by something, and it starts somewhere. I think it was Aristotle who was like, every 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 um, every effect has a cause, or a every action a reaction. Newton. And if this is what we know, and we work our way back from there, how did it all originally start? Where was the inspiration for relationship? Where did that all begin? So I we went all the way back to the start. Thinking through this, and what we know of how the world was created, modern cosmology teaches us that there was nothing kind of transcendent or outside of the matter that we now know is growing and expanding our universe, but rather our universe is creating of itself. And it's just expounding and expanding, and what they call dark matter is just expanding on itself and growing and growing and growing. And um, what that teaches us, I think, like theologically, like when we look at that, and if we posit that there's some kind of like divine beginning, we see a God like creating of itself, expanding, moving, changing, ebbing, flowing, and we're included in this existence. And it's almost like that imago dei, image of God. We're created in his image. Everything that exists is inspired by that one thing. And we're created within this system. I like to imagine God being creative, the ultimate creative, who caused all of the lines, the ears, the horizons, and all of these things that Doctor Who... um, Doctor Who? I'm I'm mixing my terms. I'm not a fiction guy, okay? Doctor Seuss, who created Whoville. That's where the link up went. Doctor Who created Whoville, got this inspiration from... Creating a world of relationship whereby every idea is connected to something, whether it be an object or a subject. And so the nature of our world is a world where it all started somewhere and everything is related. And so with that, we see God within it creating, having created, and us reimagining who we are and what that is, and God doing the same thing with us. I think that um this this was really big for me um I'll get vulnerable here for a second when i I was actually just saying this to you at dinner michelle when when I started bible college i um I think I had a lot more questions than i had sorry answers than I did questions, and now I'm finished, I dare say it's the opposite I have a lot more questions than I do answers and one of those was. I think I know who God is. I have a pretty good idea. And now I, I see God as changing. When I have a look at the Christian story and I have a look at a relational God, not a deistic God, like the watchmaker who creates the watch, lets it go and tick and you know, charge itself and then walk away from it, but a theistic God who's interested in creation who's a part of creation, who's relating to creation and creation relating the other way back. He's a God who's subject to change. He's also a God, because of relationship, who's subject to our change and is a part of that. That was huge for me to understand. It makes God, I think in my eyes, a lot more beautiful it's just like in my marriage, if I was to remain the same person that I was when Eleni and I first met, I'd probably be still be playing World of Warcraft 20 hours a week <laughs> and spending all my grocery money on microwavable rice and tuna. But, Sorry. look, sometimes, <laughs> only sometimes. But now that I'm in a relationship with Eleni and, and, and everything I do has an effect, I've changed who I am to accommodate for Lenny's existence within my frame of existence. And I think that's what God's doing with us. God is reimagining the world and the universe as it looks like because of what we look like within it. And we see this woven throughout. I'm at point two now, what has to do with the Christian story. We see that in in the Christian story. If you ever read the Old Testament, Philip Yancey once in in his book, Um, What's So Amazing About Grace, he said that he took this retreat... And he went away on this retreat and he took his Bible with him. And I don't know how many of you guys have read your Bible cover to cover. I did it when I was maybe like 12 and tried to do it again and couldn't. It was a really difficult thing to do. He's, I think he was maybe 40 or 45 and said, so like, I've never read my Bible cover to cover. And look, don't feel bad. Like, there are so many. But whatever. Anyway, he went and did it. And he took like a week or a week and a half off work and he went out to this cabin out in the woods and he read his Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And as he's reflecting on God, and especially how God is portrayed in the Old Testament, um, he sees a God like a mother sometimes. He sees God as a nurturer sometimes. He sees God as as a father sometimes, as a brother sometimes. As transcendent sometimes. As very imminent sometimes. And if you ever read, like... um, If you've read through the prophets, you you, you see God like lamenting, absolutely crying, hurting. It's It's different for us to imagine God hurting, isn't it? But that's what's recorded there. In relationship with the people, covenanted together, promised together, and these people turning away from God, and God feeling that. Absolute agony. And the inverse, when they come back to him and into right relationship and within the stipulations of what that covenant was, the absolute joy and elation, the feeling that any parent would have when the relationship is right with their child. There's this one particular like, poetic portrayal of this um, where God is so frustrated with Israel Israel's turned their back, taken on the Babylonian ways. They're in exile. Things are getting worse. They're losing their traditions. They're acting out of covenant. And, and God, after about you know, 10 chapters, before, like preceding this particular chapter, that 10 chapters is just like slamming Israel. You've done this. You've done that. I told you not to do that. This is what's going to happen. All right, like you guys are absolutely going to get smoked and you deserve it. Next chapter but you are my child. I love you. I, I, you. When you were learning how to walk, I held you up and we walked together just like a baby. I, how can I turn my back on you? How could I turn my back on you? How could any father turn their back on a child? And you see God... Visibly, tangibly, you read it out of the pages. It's just soaking in emotion. And God changing and changing what the covenant looked like and changing what grace looked like based on the grace that humanity needed. Based on what we needed. We see God change for us. We see God meet us where we are. And He does that because God is in relationship with us. Not in some transcendent way, where he's you know, away from our existence, but he's within it. And again, I don't think the Bible tells us that you know, God is the trees. But when his holy environment is getting cut down and the systemic abuse of the environment and people aren't, uh, uh, you know, live in the quality of life that we were intended to and, and people are hurting, you know, God isn't just someone who just listens to that and is separate from that. At least in the Hebrew Scriptures, God is portrayed as someone who feels that. We have a God of relationship. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I can relate to that. And in the person of Jesus, I see God revealed to us as someone in relationship, as someone that we needed to show us another way, to show us the true face of God. One of my, my favourite theologians, is um, a the German guy by the name of Jürgen Moltmann, and he wrote this book in the 60s called The Crucified God. And he was a German, and this is post-World War II. And he was struggling with the message gap that the church was having with, um, with society, torn by suffering. And the church was constantly bastioning itself with with messages of of victory and of almost transcendence from the suffering that the rest of the world was feeling. And Montman was deeply affected by that, but transformed in his studies when he studied not the risen God, now not aside from this, but a focus on the incarnated God, the God who was crucified, the God who bled, the God who suffered, the God that broke bread with us the God like we're talking about in Eucharist who reimagined who He was in light of who we are. Don't you do that in relationships? Don't I cancel my World of Warcraft account and start buying some more delicious food so that my wife can enjoy her life with me? Now, I'm not likening myself to, to the, the great majesty and hugeness of what God did in, in, in Jesus. But I, please don't take that like that. That's not what I mean. I'm just using something maybe tangible that I can relate to. See <laughs> <the> how pathetic I am. <laughs> But in Jesus, the most powerful thing is, not how powerful He is. The most powerful thing is, is how powerless God allows God's own self to become. It completely flips everything that we expected of God. That's why it's like foolishness to the Greek. I mean, to the Greeks, their gods were like Zeus and just absolute ballers up in, um, you know... Godland just doing crazy things with massive muscles and getting played by characters like Liam Neeson. Like these were gods not to be messed with. And to the Jews wanting to just throw off the the shackles of Roman occupation and a complete drowning out of their culture, it was a stumbling block. What do you mean? I thought this Messiah was going to be someone who you know, come in on a white horse and did a lot more than that carpenter guy did. What does dying have anything to teach us? This is like, And a stumbling block. Understandably so. I don't blame them. I can completely understand that. But what we see there is not a God on a white horse. Not a God with massive muscles getting played by Liam Neeson. But we see a God who bled. We see a God who broke bread with us. See a God who partook of our humanity. And I think that's the most beautiful thing. In scripture, this is talked about differently, and the two verses that were read by Mina and and Lorraine are some of my favorites. And I I picked those tonight because I think I think though those two authors, Matthew and, and John both with different gists, different um, emphases in those texts, I I think they caught on to something quite similar. I think they caught on to the hugeness. For John, the cosmological hugeness of God. God, the Word, through whom everything was created. That in the Greek, their word is, is logos. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but in, in the Greek world, logos was almost like the fabric in which the world was created that held everything together, the rationale, the logic behind everything. And John's case to Jews, a Jewish community, reimagining what their Judaism looks like in light of who this Christ guy is, is like, that guy was everything the world has ever been. And in that statement is saying that the cosmos looks like Jesus and Jesus looks like he's in relationship and relationship looks like suffering, looks like solidarity, looks like being what you need the other people in the relationship, being what what they need you to be. And that's a lot more beautiful than a back turned or indifference to Or difference from that that's something that we can relate to. When we know that there's that other, that that's something else, that the very fabric of who we are is made up, not of some muscly guy in the cosmos, who's indifferent to what we feel. But feels with us. And like John. Thought the fabric of the universe shares this same character, then we see our world forming and changing, depending on who we are too. I don't know. Like Matthew was written well, well before John, um, and again, these authors are saying completely, you know, different things in the gist of what they, you know, uh, the, the big sweep of each of the passages. But I think I think Matthew picks up on the. Um, I think on the existential side of this, when he's like, the king saying, you know, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the righteous would say, Lord, when did, you see, or when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And when I started Bible college, I, I I think I could relate to to the righteous there. I didn't see you hungry. I didn't see you sick. I didn't see you in prison. I saw you within the five points of Calvinism. I saw you in my favourite theologians. I saw you in my absolutist attitude. I saw you powerful. I saw you muscly. I saw you capable of doing anything. I saw you omnipotent. I saw you in all these different ways. When did I ever see you weak? And in, in Matthew's understanding of the Lord, of Jesus, in his actual experience, of God, we see God saying of God's self. Whenever you did any of those things to those who were hurting, whenever you, as a relational being, felt whatever it was that tugged you, whether it was your own sense of morality or conscience or the feeling you need to do something based on someone else's suffering, based on someone else's hurt, like the video said, what we do causes wounds and heals, causes scars or heals wounds in the face of our shared existence. When you did that, you did that to me. I think that's indicative of a God who shares our experience as in relationship with us because God allows allows himself to be. And as we're forming together, as we are creating ourselves, as we are changing, God being loving and in relationship, Is there for us in that journey and beckons us, not coerces us, beckons us with a call, a silent call, to love without why, to give without question, and to join him in this divine dance as you know the universe is creating itself, and as God is allowing that image to be planted on us and ever-changing. We're in relationship. Is calling us to be responsive to that because God is in that and that's just the way the universe was created. That's just the way it was supposed to be. And I think that, that, that gives us cause to care. Victor Hugo, Victor Hugo sorry, said, to love another person is to see the face of God. Whenever um, I've, I've been affected probably the most you know, experientially has been when, when, when I'm going through something, whether it be good, whether it be bad, and someone else self-identifies with my experience. Someone creates solidarity with me by existing with me as I am. And I can be myself. Have you felt sad and just sat down and someone just sits with you and says nothing? Just being with you. And in that solidarity completely just changes the way that you are. I don't know what happens there. But I think there's something healing in that. I think there's something about relationship that allows us to be vulnerable and open for other people to come in and, and change and, and redeem us. But it also, you know, has, you know, the opposite effect as well, where being related, you know, if if a lean before was to say hurtful things about me, I probably would have felt that. I'm not indifferent to that. I'm not indifferent to, you know, me standing here is, is in relation to this wood here holding me up. If the wood was character differently, my existence would look very different right now. I am who I am because of what's around me and who's around me. Um, I think God created it that way. I, this Humans of New York, like you guys know Humans of New York is this photographer, yeah. He took this, um, this photo of uh, this guy in a, in a baseball stadium uh, who was studying to be a rabbi and he said, what I want to create my, um, my tabernacle to be, I want it to reflect the kind of feeling That's here, when the Mets hit a home run and everyone stands up and cheers together. Everyone identifies with the other's experience and we're together on that. And I think that in that way, in those ways, in those relational ways, because everything is of God, we see God in those things and quite natural things. Um, And I think that's beautiful. And so for us, the call is to love the neighbour. The call is to be responsive to not just our own needs and who we are, but to those of the world around us, and that's going to look like different things. For me in my workplace tomorrow, it could look like someone who needs water cooler chat. I might not even be thirsty. I might just have to go to the water cooler and, and talk and just be there with them. For someone else, it might be someone celebrating something, something amazing, and us joining in that, in the relational beauty that we share in each other's victories and joys and all of it. The call for us as relational Christians is to be in a world that's subject to the change that we and and those around us invite in ourselves and to be responsive to that and to join in that divine dance of being what others need us to be for them. We're not unaffected by the choices that all of us make and we want to be there for that. I think that really matters to God. And I see that in Jesus. I think the state of humanity and the state of the world was enough so that God could be with us, have solidarity with us, and share with us. And I think that call is on us as well. And it found that's, um, that's what we want to be on about. That's what we want to do. We want to reimagine who we are based on who you are and what you need. To be responsive to that, we want to share in your victories. We want to cheer with you. We want to be relational. We also want to hurt with you. Suffer with you. When you're suffering, we're suffering. Hopefully we'll be able to transform our experiences together because you affect us and we affect you. And what we do in this world, what we do in this community depends on what you do, depends on what we do, depends on what that, or how, how we respond together. I think that's the way that God wanted us to be. And I think as we love each other, as we love our, love our neighbour, as we love our other, and as we allow that other to transform who we are, we're loving God as well. And that's what we want to be on about. Thank you.